So before I actually begin with today's sermon, with today's message, um, first of all, I just want to say happy Fourth of July. Um, as Americans, we celebrate our um, Independence Day. We gained our independence and became a country. It's a great time, a great time of joy and celebration. And I remember as a young child, as a young kid, it was a big deal. Everyone had a great time. Everyone felt patriotic. But nowadays, many of you know that things have changed dramatically. And now there is this effort to <clears throat> make it seem like uh, our... Fourth of July or independence is not really truly independence, and that we it's it's wrong to celebrate it. It's, uh, it's triggering. It's repressive, and a bunch of other things. And 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 so you know the atmosphere about it has declined dramatically. But I'll tell you what I am one to not be ashamed of saying Happy Fourth of July um, and that we are blessed to live in this country, to have the rights we have in this country, to you know, be able to, to come together as believers to, to worship and to read our Bibles without, any, without fear of being persecuted, to be sent to jail, um, like other countries, like Christ, like our brothers and sisters are experiencing in other countries. Now, as I was thinking also about our, what this means, what this means, for, what this ought to mean for all of us, I was thinking about, have you guys seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Um, I'm sure it's a classic uh, by now, and many people have seen it. If you haven't seen it, this would be a good time to mute the mic, I'm going to be talking about it a little bit, maybe giving and giving away some spoilers. So um, I want to give you an opportunity to mute the mute the mic for now. I'll let you, I'll give you a thumbs up when I'm done. But uh, but at the end of that movie, there's a couple of relative themes that I want to bring up. I can't think of the character's name, but Tom Hanks' character at the end of the movie when he was about to die. He whispered in Private Ryan's ear, earn this. And as I was thinking about that, I, I, I think it's important that we, as Americans in general, that we, and with the freedoms that we have, that we apply that into our own lives. So as you're watching the fireworks and spending time with your family, or maybe there's a time when you're just reflecting. Think about whether or not, you know, you've earned it. You know, imagine these revolutionary soldiers coming up to you, telling you, earn this, as they're dying, as they're getting shot, as they're getting shot by the English and English soldiers, soldiers and ask yourself, you know, have you earned this? this right to be an American. 
them dying in order for you to have these freedoms. But on the other hand, there's another aspect to this as well. Now, all of us that are Christians, we know that we can't earn the love of Christ. That's something that's not earned. That is a free gift of God by grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, that only happens when we've been forgiven of our sins and we've been born again. However, as Christians, we can live a life worthy of the calling in which we were called. In the end of that episode, or in the end of that movie too, um, the elderly Private Ryan, as he's standing in front of the, his captain's no. memorial, was it? Captain Miller's gravesite. He's reflecting and thinking and telling him, I hope, you know, I, telling him, I hope I, I, I lived this life right. And I'm more or less paraphrasing here, but he, his wife then comes next to him and he looks at her and says that I live a good life. He questions her and asks her whether or not he lived a good life. And so as I said, you know, we we can, as Christians, live a good life in Christ and with, again, the, the forgiveness of sins that we have now as born-again believers. But I want to read to you quickly what Paul wrote to the church of Colossae. And I think this will explain well the kind of lives that we ought to live as Christians. So I'm going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of your love, and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and, and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has told us about your love in the Spirit. And so here he starts again to the meat of potatoes. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, 
personally, again, uh, to summarize what I'm what I'm saying here is, as you're looking at the fireworks, think about whether or not you've earned this as an American, and also ask yourself if you're living a life worthy of the calling which you were called, just as Paul wrote here. Are you obedient? Are you being faithful? And if it's hard to answer that question, or you're saying that you haven't, there's, it's not too late. You still can turn back, come to Christ, and He will forgive you, and He will accept you, and He will love you. And, and it's never too late to turn your life around and live a life worthy of this calling. So I'll end with that. But again, happy Independence Day, happy 4th of July. And uh, may the Lord bless you, keep you safe during this day. Don't get your fingers off by the fireworks. Um, and, uh, and eat as many hot dogs and hamburgers as you can. All right, so... This week, I've titled today's message, Casualties of War. So as we move from our example or our illustration from this morning um, of, of war, we've now, we're now moving on to another historical war that happened a long, long time ago. Before we read God's word, let me, let me uh, pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for our country and we thank you for living in this beautiful country of ours, Lord, and that we have the rights and freedoms, and uh, you have blessed us tremendously. Pray you will continue to bless this country, Lord, and continue to bless us, and uh, pray for our leaders and, and those making decisions, Lord, uh, that we will remain a strong and blessed place to live in. And so now as we get into your word, I pray you will bless this time, Lord. Fill this room with your spirit. Um, so that we may hear from you powerfully, Lord, um, and clearly. Uh, we are looking forward to just sitting at your feet and listening to what you have to say through this story of David. Bless everyone here. Bless everyone watching, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Second Samuel chapter 3. During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by Ahinoam the Jezreelite. His second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. The third was Absalom, son of uh, Makkah, the daughter of King Talmai of Gusher. The fourth was Adonijah, son of Hagith. The fifth was Shephatiah, son of Abital. Sixth was Ethrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Aiah and Ishbosheth questioned Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry about Ishbosheth's accusation. Am I a dog's head who belongs to Judah? He asked. 
all this time I've been loyal to the family, to the family of your father, Saul, to his brothers and to his friends and haven't betrayed you, David, haven't betrayed you to David. But now you accuse me of wrongdoing with this woman. May God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do it for David. I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Shibosheth did not dare respond to Abner because he was afraid of him. Abner sent messengers as his representatives to say to David, Whose land is it? Make your covenant with me, and you can be certain that I am on your side to turn all Israel over to you. David replied, Good, I will make a covenant with you. However, there is one thing I require of you. You will not see my face Saul's daughter, Michael, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to say to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, give me back my wife, Michael. I was engaged to her for the price of 100 Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth sent someone to take her away from her husband, Paltiel, from Laish. Her husband followed her, weeping all the way to Bahurim. Abner said to him, go back. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. In the past, you wanted David to be king over you. Now take action because of the Lord, because the Lord has spoken concerning David. Though my servant David, through my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. Abner also informed the Benjaminites and went to Hebron to inform David about all that was agreed on by Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. When Abner and 20 men came to David at Hebron, David held a banquet for him and his men. Abner said to David, Let me now go, and I will gather all Israel to my lord the king. They will make a covenant with you, and you will reign over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner, and he went in peace. Just then David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid and brought a large amount of plundered goods with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron because David had dismissed him, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and his whole army arrived, Joab was informed, Abner, son of Ner, <clears throat> came to see the king. The king dismissed him, and he went in peace. Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look here. Abner came to you. Why did you dismiss him? Now he's getting away. You know what Abner, son of Ner, came? You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and to find out about your military activities. And everything you're doing. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David was unaware of it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab pulled him aside to the middle of the city gate as if to speak to him privately. And there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. So Abner died in revenge for the death of Asahel, Joab's brother. David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner's son of Ner. May he hang over Joab's head and his father's whole family, and may the house of Joab never be without someone who has a discharge or skin disease, or a man who can only work 
a spindle, or someone who falls by the sword or starves. Joab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in battle at Gibeon. David then ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. When they buried Abner in Hebron, the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept, and the king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands are not, are, are not bound, your feet not placed in bronze shackles. You fell like one who falls victim to criminals. All the people wept over him even more. Then they came to urge David to eat food while he was still day, but David took an oath. May God punish me ever so severely if I taste bread or anything else before sunset. All the people took note of this, and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops in all Israel were convinced that, king, that the king had no part in, killing, in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his soldiers, You must know that a great leader has fallen in Israel today. As for me, even though I am the anointed king, I have little power today. These men, the sons of Zariah, are too fierce for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. This first civil war broke out after the death of Saul and when David was made king. Uh, in Hebron and Ishbosheth, the king of the other territories. And the narrator of this story, instead of describing all the gruesome details, we're just told that this was just a long war. David gains power, strength, and Saul's house grows weaker. Now, during that time, we're also David's family grew larger. When he first came to Hebron, he, he had two wives. Not that that was right, but he had two, two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. Now, contrary to God's will, he married four more, Maka, Hagith, Abital, and Eglah. By these six wives, he had six sons. And three of them would turn out to be huge, big problems for him later on. These were Ammon, Absalom, and Adonijah. And we'll eventually read about what these problems were as we go through Second Samuel, but uh, keep those names in mind as we cover the next uh, as we cover this book. Now, even though he was supposed to be serving Ishbosheth, this uh, Saul's son, Abner, who we read about last week, was actually strengthening his own political position by acquiring more power for himself. When Ishbosheth realized this, he found an opportunity to challenge Abner by accusing him of sleeping with Ritzpah, a concubine of his dead father and king. See, at that time, to take a wife or a concubine of the late king was seen as an attempt to appropriate his property, 
and to make a bid for the throne. So this became soon Ishbosheth felt like Abner was now a threat to the crown, the crown that he was wearing. Now whether Abner was guilty of this is unclear because the text doesn't specify if he really did this or not. But in any case, Abner denied it vigorously and also very disrespectfully. By saying, am I a dog's head who belongs to Judah? He's basically saying, do you see me as worthless, as a worthless, contemptible traitor, loyal to Judah? In his anger, he also announced that because of Ishbosheth's disrespect, he would transfer his allegiance to that of the tribes of Israel, transfer his allegiance and that of the tribes of Israel to David. Even Abner, who had willingly disregarded what he knew to be God's revealed purpose, he now finds himself helping to fulfill it. He now realizes, understands, and gets it that in the near future, David will reunite the kingdoms of Israel and Judah all the way from the northern tip of Dan to the southern tip of Beersheba. Well, this quickly silences the king, Ishibosheth, because he now also understands that his reign as king will come to an end if well, without the support of Abner. So although he does hold the title of king, Ishbosheth now realizes that he's nothing more than a puppet leader, completely powerless to oppose his general. And what a sad place to be, having that title, but having no power. Well, Abner is as good as his defiant word, because beginning in verse 12, he immediately enters into negotiations with David to explore ways to deliver the north to David. David seems to like the idea and appears ready to give Abner what he wants with one condition. David demands from Abner that his wife, Michael, daughter of Saul, whom he had won in a battle and had presented to Saul 100, foreskin, 100 Philistine foreskins and who was later taken from him, he wants her back. He wants his wife, Michael, back. Now, even though that she was given to someone else, Abner complies and he's even the king David sends a letter to the other king and says I want my wife back and uh, well Abner complies and Emilia sends someone to take her away from her new husband from the husband that she uh, was married and married to well at this point there was nothing this new husband can do either it was out of his hands 
Palatir. He could do nothing except follow her and just weep. And just weep uncontrollably until they had reached a certain point in their destination and was told to go home. Now, it doesn't say this, but I personally wonder if he himself understood that maybe this is how David felt when Michael was taken from him and given over to Peltier. And he said, yeah, I'll marry her. He must have known. And maybe he didn't care. And so now... You know, he sees that he sees her going away, and maybe he's totally fallen in love with her, but at this point, it doesn't matter. It's out of his control. He can't do anything about it. And like a puppy dog, he's told to go home. So he does. After this was accomplished, verse 17 then tells us that Abner met with the elders, especially those from Benjamin, Saul's own tribe. He explained the situation and persuaded them that the role of David over them was in their best interest. Now, what's significant about this was that Abner, not David, came to them and persuaded them to trust David. See, even though he was the rightful king, David wouldn't reign over Israel until they submitted to him freely. He never moved an inch without an invitation. This here is an illustration of Jesus' lordship in our life. He is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords, but he chooses, for the most part, to exercise his sovereignty only at our invitation. We only, he only comes if we ask him. Some don't invite Jesus to rule over anything. Some invite Jesus to reign over a small area like Hebron. Some give Jesus reign over everything he has authority over, which is everything. Abner is a good example of someone who eventually surrendered to God's king. And now he wanted to influence others to also surrender to God's king. Well, upon getting their approval, he set up a meeting with David, and when he arrived at Hebron, David welcomed him by hosting a banquet for him and his men. And at that banquet, a covenant was made between Israel and David that assured David's rule over the north that was to be based on need, respect, and mutuality. Well, needless to say, this meeting between David and Abner ends in peace. So not only was there shalom or peace between David and Israel, but Abner leaves in shalom, unhurt, 
and unhindered. Now, another result of this meeting was that Abner had gained the respect of David, which really bothered a lot of David's loyal men. And we find out that particularly bothered was Joab, David's military commander. When he returned from a raid and had heard about what had happened while he was out battling David's enemies. It says in verse 22 that Job, Joab was informed that David had hosted a feast for Abner and had made a peace agreement with him. So he chewed out the king and told him that Abner's true purpose was to spy on him. Then Joab took it upon himself and took measures to have Abner returned from the well of Sarah. And then pretending like he wanted to speak to him privately to tell him something important, Joab pulled, out, pulled him aside, pulled out his knife or his sword, and stabbed him in the stomach. Another casualty of war. At the end of verse 27, it makes it explicitly clear that this murder was revenge for the death of Asahel, Job's brother, which again we read about last week. Now what makes this even more egregious was that it was done in a place that, according to Joshua chapter 21, verse 13, had been designated as a sanctuary city or a city of refuge. But unlike our current definition of a sanctuary city, here a sanctuary city was a place where an Israelite who unintentionally killed someone was able to flee and be safe from revenge from the dead person's family. Well, Joab violated God's word by ignoring this law and killing Abner to avenge the death of his brother Asahel. But here's the thing. There's a big difference between the deaths of Asahel and Abner. See, Abner, see, Asahel had been killed in battle. And it was thus honorable, and it shouldn't really have been avenged. Whereas, the entire way, the entire, entire manner in which a military commander like Joab was killed was wrong, dishonorable, it was sneaky, it was done without the king's knowledge. It was just, it was completely wrong. When David heard about this, he wasn't happy or glad that another obstacle to his way to the throne had been taken out. No, he wasn't happy about it. Instead, he and his kingdom were forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. And he then uttered a curse on Joab and his descendants in verse 29. David then proclaimed a public mourning, burned Abner in honor at Hebron, and wrote a lamentation in which he spoke of the shameful way in which Abner had died. See, David's compassion 
and forgiving spirit were evident here. Qualities which separated him from ordinary men. And as a sign of his sincerity, he then went a step further, taking a, a vow fast, and publicly declared that publicly declared on that particular day that he had little power compared to Abner. Well, because of what they saw David do, that day all the troops in all Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. David didn't have to tell, make a public announcement or spread the news. I didn't do it. I had no idea. His actions spoke louder than those words. They knew that he was being sincere. Now, before moving on to chapter 4, I want to share with you uh, two lessons that we can learn from this chapter. The first lesson we can learn is the importance of diplomacy. The dictionary defines diplomacy in this way. The art and practice of conducting negotiations between nations and, secondly, a skill in handling affairs without arise or arousing hostility. So although this word more so applies to representatives of different nations, diplomats, Jesus desires that his followers also have a diplomatic type of disposition, a diplomatic type of attitude towards others. And here's what Jesus said about it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. He said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Therefore, if you want to be called sons and daughters of God, you should look for ways to find be that peacemaker, to find resolution when you're in conflict with another believer. Yes, even when they've spoken out against you and have tried to hurt you, like what Abner had done to David for many years. Now, if you're the one who has uh, done the harm, Put your pride aside and do whatever is necessary to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. But if the harm has been done to you, we've been given a guideline from Jesus. And, uh, well, this is the guideline that Jesus established in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And there Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have one, your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention to even the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, 
Don't have anything to do with them. Again, be the peacemaker. You be the peacemaker. Don't wait for the other person to be a peacemaker. Because many times that won't happen. But you be that person that God, God, God called you to be. If you do that with sincerity, with all your heart, God will see it. He will honor it. And it says, again, blessed are you. And you will be called sons of God. What an honor to be called that. Well, the second lesson we can learn from this is, from what we just read, is the danger of retribution. Here, the true casualty of war, even though, yes, Abner had been killed, the true casualty of war was Joab. And it, for him, that happened the moment his brother died. You see, the only thing that on Joab's mind at Abner, at, at, yeah, at Abner for what he had done. And when the opportunity presented itself, he acted on his own self-interest and he never even considered, or maybe he just didn't even care about the short-term and long-term ramifications of his actions. The lesson here is, uh, as believers, we mustn't let our anger. If you're an angry person and you're quick-tempered and you get triggered really easy, you can't let that anger get the best of you. And when you find yourself tempted, you must resist that temptation to harm the people that have triggered you, that have hurt you, that have harmed you. Because I know from experience that it can be very easy just to hurt those people that hurt you, to, to avenge, revenge, to get retribution. Jonathan Edwards said this, Pride is the one chief cause, cause of undue anger. It is because men are proud and exalt themselves in their own hearts that they are revengeful and are apt to be excited and make great things out of little ones that may be against themselves. Yea, they may even treat as vices things that are in themselves virtues. When they think uh, their honor is touched or when their will is crossed. And it is, this, uh, and it is pride that makes men so unreasonable and rash in their anger. And it raises it to such a high degree and continues it so long and often keeps it up in the form of habitual malice. If men sought not chiefly their own private and selfish interest, but the glory of God and the common good, then their spirit would be a great deal more stirred up by God's cause than in their own. And they would not be prone to hasty, rash, inconsiderate, immoderate, and long-continued wrath with any who might have injured or provoked them. But they would in a great measure, forget themselves for God's sake 
and for their zeal for the honor of Christ. The end would the the end they would aim at would be not making themselves great or getting their own will, but the glory of God and the good of their fellow beings. Don't become a casualty of war, Christian. Don't allow your anger to make you a casualty of war, just as it did with Abner. So now as we move on to chapter 4, we're going to see how Abner's death led to more casualties of war. So let's now go to chapter 4 and read from verse 1. So short chapter, just 12 verses. When Saul's son Ishbosheth heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he gave up. And all Israel was dismayed. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding parties, one named Bana and the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, the Berothite of the Benjamites. Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Berothites fled to get them and still reside there as aliens today. Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nanny picked him up and fled. But as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Rechab and Bana, the sons of Ramon, the Berathite, set out and arrived at Ishbosheth's house during the heat of the day. While the king was taking his midday nap, they entered the interior of the house as if to get wheat and stabbed them in the stomach. When Rechab and his brother Bana escaped, they had entered the. Then they both. Uh, Rechab and his brother escaped. They had entered the house while Ishbosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom and stabbed and killed him. They removed his head took it and traveled by way of Rabbah all night. They brought Ishbosheth's head to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who, who intended to take your life. Today the Lord has granted vengeance to my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rachab and his brother Bana, sons of Ramon, the, Beth, the beer othite as the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from as the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from every distress. When the person told me, Look, Saul is dead, he thought he was a bearer of good news, but I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was my reward to him for his news. How much worse, how much more when the wicked men kill a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed. So now should I not require the blood from you and purge you from the earth? So David gave orders to the young men, and they killed Rechab and Bana. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Abner's death was a crushing blow 
to anyone who resisted David's rule, especially for the king of the north, Ishbosheth. See, he had become dependent on Abner's military skills and leadership abilities. And he became so dependent on it that without him, he knew that he'd no longer be able to maintain his position as king. And he'd find himself as another casualty of war. But before he felt the sharp edge of a sword pierce his Chapter 4 begins by telling us that the first casualties of war after the death of Abner was the morale of Ishbosheth and all of Israel. And well, sure enough, sensing that Ishbosheth was powerless, two Benjaminite assassins, Bana and Rachab, gained access to Ishbosheth's house. Then, while he was sleeping, well, he was taking his midday siesta, his midday nap in his bedroom. These two men snuck in his room and stabbed him in the stomach and killed him. Afterwards, they said in verse, it says in verse 8 that they beheaded him and carried his head to David at Hebron. Now, in between this story, it's a short paragraph a short reference to Jonathan's son, Meshivosheth, in verse 4. Now, although this story may seem like it's kind of out of place, out of place in, in the whole general story, it's actually not. See, when we get to chapter 9, his name, Meshivosheth's name, will pop up again as an important character in David's way to the throne, or as David now establishes his kingdom. But for now, the only thing the narrator wants us to know is who Meshibosheth was and what happened to him. Verse 4 says that he was Jonathan's son. David's best friend is his son, and he was also Saul's grandson and that his feet were crippled when he was drawn by his nanny as she picked him up to flee as Saul and Jonathan, when she heard that Saul and Jonathan had died. He himself was a casualty also of war, not of the civil war that was going on, but of another war. And this poor five-year-old child became a casualty of that war. And so, thus his permanent disability was the cost that he had to pay for living. And so now, uh, the story of these two assassins continue in verses 9 through 12. Here we learn that David's response to this deed, to what they did, which was done, obviously, to gain his favor, to win bounty points, to make him make them look good in front of everybody, to the king and to all of the people, was identical to his reaction when he learned about 
Saul's death. He ordered that those two men be executed, their hands and feet to be cut off, and their bodies to be hanged publicly by the pool in Hebron. David regarded their act as an unjustified assault on a defenseless man. Well, this shows us that David's stern measures, measures of of retribution, was a reflection of his genuine love for Saul and his family, even though most of them were against him, had turned their backs on David. In the end, we learn that Ishbosheth's head was buried in Abner's tomb. Now, we're not told that this king had an elaborate funeral like that of his father and Abner, but it's ironic that he was buried and honored beside Abner. And it's ironic because it was Abner who had essentially created him, who had basically shaped his life to be king. And now he's his companion in death. Also Hebron, the only place that accepted him, accepted David as king, now becomes a burying ground for David's opponents. Men who may have been threats in life, but were honored in their death. Fellow believers, Christian, just as there is a right way and a wrong way to become king in ancient Israel, there's also a right and wrong way for us to fulfill the promises of God in our lives. And just as the righteous way illustrated in this chapter by David leads to strength, and the wrong way illustrated by Ishbosheth to weakness, so there are consequences to the way we choose. First, let me explain what that looks like for you and me. The Bible portrays two important gardens where individuals typify the right way and the wrong way to fulfill God's purposes in our lives. In the Garden of Eden, Eve recognized that the forbidden fruit would make her wise like God. Of course, she and Adam had been created in God's image and were much like God as creatures could be. But she accepted the servant's view of reality and believed she could forge a better way than God had planned. On the other hand, an individual, we see an individual praying fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this presents a completely different portrait. You see, when you're faced with your own supreme trial, and here cup is a metaphor for calamity and death, 
we can look or you can look at how Jesus affirmed his essential orientation around God's will. He stayed focused on that. That's what his whole life, everything that he did, said, was was focused around. It centered around that God's will. And you can too. And you and this and this can encourage you. When you do that yourself, this can be encouraged. And you can be encouraged by this truth, regardless of the outcome, regardless of what the the bank tells you, regardless of what the doctors tell you, regardless of what your professors tell you, you can have peace when you remember, when you always keep in mind that everything is according to God's will. And when you place yourself there, when you place yourself in that in the hands of God, there's just so much peace can be found there. During those times of crises, or those difficult times, you must have in the forefront of your mind the words he spoke there, that Jesus spoke there in the garden, in Mark 14, 36, and find comfort in them. Not what I will, but what your will, but what you will. These individuals, these two gardens, exemplify the choices that are in front of you as you continually seek to make God's purposes a reality in your life. Also, the portrait, the portrait of Jesus embracing his divine vocation now leads me to mention another right, right way all believers not just individual us as individuals, but all believers can fulfill the promise, the promises of God. See the figure stooped in prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane fulfills for us the messianic themes that have so far been identified here in this book. In both these books, see for the most part, David is celebrated. So has been celebrated so far as the ideal king who willingly submits to God's timing and direction and constantly repudiates the way of power, politics, and force. Jesus, though, our Lord and Savior, fulfills all that was right with David. Like David, he could have chosen the wrong way to accomplish his divine mission. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Satan even tempted him to choose that wrong way. But Jesus chose the right way. And as a result, this made him the ideal king, not just for Israel, but for all of us as well. Someone who we can look up to as an example. See, he chose the right way by submitting his divine vocation as the son of David through patient waiting and service. Therefore, if all of us want to fulfill the promises of God, 
we must also submit to what he's called us to be or what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be with patience and service as well. With that same patience and service that he had when he ministered and served people, we must have it as well. And we must have it to one another until Jesus comes back or when he takes us home. So the last thing I want to mention before I close is this. The four kings that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 5 were certainly active in David's from us uh, were certainly active in these scenes from David's life. As it says in chapter in Romans chapter 5 verse 21, sin was reigning as men lied to each other, hated each other, and sought to destroy each other. And like Romans chapter 5 verses 14 and 17 it says that death also reigned as Asahel, Abner, and Ashibosheth were slain, along with nearly 400 soldiers who had, who had died in the battle at the pool of Gibeon. But God's grace also reigned, as Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 21. For he protected David and overrule, overrules men's sins to accomplish his divine purposes, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But David reigned in life and let God control him as he faced one emergency after another. He was a man empowered by God. And God brought him through each crisis and helped him succeed. So in the midst of your own troubles and trials that you may be facing today, those things that are constantly on your mind that you are losing sleep over and that are bringing you anxiety that you know, you've lost all your nails because you've been chewing them and you're worried about this and that. All those things that are troubling you today. As a born-again believer, you can reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If you will surrender to him, wait on him and trust in His promises. Now in a moment, we are going to be having communion together. But before I do that, I want to share with you something important here that, we've, that we see. Is that Again, there's many ways in which David is, is a picture of Jesus. And one of those ways that we saw that he showed restraint, he showed love, he, he showed patience, and he knew 
that he would one day be king and our Savior will one day reign. He will come back and reign and we will be with him forever and ever. If, and you will reign with him too, if you believe in him, trust in him, and surrender your life to him. But as I mentioned, that he won't force you. That's something that you have to choose for yourself. If you believe and recognize that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, well, I want to invite you to the cross and allow you to give your life to Jesus Christ, to allow Him to come and reign over your life. So if you want to be born again, you want a new life, a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing, a new way of a fresh vision of this, your life and this entire world. I, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and pray this prayer with all sincerity. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I realize that, and I admit to that. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. So now I repent. I truly repent of my sins. And I'll turn from them and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and for forgiving me. I accept that forgiveness. So now I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me, so that he will strengthen me, so that he will help me to get through these difficult times of life, Lord. I need you. So again, thank you for all you've done for me, all you did for me on the cross and all you will continue to do. In your name, I pray this. Amen. If you prayed that, let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to want you to reach out and let us know uh, how you prayed that or how you came to watch this video. Um, we'll get back to you if you want to. If you want to tell us about that. Uh, with that, I'm going to end today's message. Um, next week, we're going to continue with uh, into Second Samuel, but. Um, once again, um, have a blessed day. Have a blessed 4th of July. Um, enjoy your day. Enjoy your week. And continue to be the salt and light in your communities and wherever you may be. Until next time, goodbye and farewell. <laughs>